Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited today. We have as our guest, actor and comedian Gary Goleman. But first, let's do this. Well, Larry, I've, I've read that it's it's a, the toughest statement I've made, but it's essentially what I said in my book. It's essentially what I've been saying around the country for the last year and a half. Look, you, you know me well. I'm a I'm a I'm a look out the windshield guy, not a rearview mirror guy. But frankly, while the president and I parted amicably at the end of the administration after that tragic day in January, uh, ever since he returned to the rhetoric he was using uh, leading up to January 6, uh, I, I've been speaking out. I, I, I had no right to overturn the election. No vice president in American history has ever asserted that right. You know, I, I, I've been speaking out everywhere. You know, I, I, it's in, it's in, it's on TV. It's in my book. Um, I, I, I spoke out at a, a strip mall in Buckhead the other day. But you know where I won't speak out? In court, or in front of the January sixth committee. I'll speak out anywhere except under oath, and where I'm testifying, because I'm a coward. And by the way, I'm, I'm actually a, a hide in the trunk guy. For anyone who cares. My God, I'm so sick of him, him and his I'm speaking out. And but he's such a coward. He won't testify. He wants accountability for Trump, but yet he won't be a part of the, the, the machinery that that achieves it. I, I just want to know what mother thinks. Maddie, mother thinks I'm limp. Uh, <laughs> so we have Trump, it, it, Trump and, and Trump denial kind of crashing two forces crashing into each other in the same week it's like you know he's going to be indicted looks like in new york he's going to be indicted and then in georgia we find out they have another phone message another answering machine message where it's from the dead the voice from where he's like you know squeezing the speaker of the georgia house and then you have all these republicans who are like insisting he's not going to be the nominee sununu he's not going to be the nominee that's just not going to happen paul ryan i don't think trump is going to get the nomination the the ace in the hole reason is that he's unelectable even most of MAGA knows this. Then you had a poll that came out, Emerson College, that has Trump leading DeSantis by 41 points. And then another Emerson poll recently that showed that 72% of Republicans with a high school degree or less education still support Trump. He likes the uneducated. He loves the uneducated. The dumber you are, the more Trump likes you. Stupid works in MAGA politics. So it's like... Are these people in denial? Like he, he was, on, was he electable last time he ran? That didn't seem to matter. As if Sununu knows what the hell is going on. By the way, that dude thinks like, if I just talk really fast, I could become president. <laughs> he is the fastest talking human I've ever seen in politics. So this week we saw that Stormy Daniels was brought in by Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Cohen went back in to testify again. Hope Hicks has already testified. Kellyanne Conway has also testified. Like, it's getting down to the wire. I actually thought that uh, by the time we clicked on the microphones this morning that it would have been a day for celebration. Next week. We hope. Next week seems like for sure. I do hope that they roll out Trump's attorney a few more times. Takachino or yeah. Taka something? Taka, Takahachi. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> I just catch him on with Ari Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. That was the like, best. Ridiculous. <laughs> It was like having like he's a queen's boy, you know, stealing candy from a baby. Well done, Ari. The big issue is going to be whether it's going to be a misdemeanor or a federal crime. And to those who are not following or a, fel this, or a felony, 
Uh, I'm sorry, a felony, right. The the issue is whether or not it's just like a simple misreporting of information or whether or not there was like campaign finance violations. It's hard to imagine that the Manhattan DA's office wouldn't be bringing charges if they would be bringing charges if they felt they didn't have something more than a misdemeanor. Well, I mean, it could be several misdemeanors. And the, and, the, and the Manhattan DA's office is unique in that it goes after these kinds of business crimes. Yes. That's their business. This is their wheelhouse. So, and then, you know, between Georgia and then Jack Smith, the the, the documents at Mar-a-Lago and J6, like, I think it's I think it's all about to come crumbling down. But, uh, you know, he is the Teflon Don. So. It's all about the base, about the base. There we go. It's uh, all about the base. There's also the new Guardian piece, which talked about another federal crime he's being investigated for on the Truth Social. Yes. Issue, which we don't know any much about. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no bottom to his swamp. And speaking of swamps, the banking collapse. Again, it, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm so sick of these Silicon Valley, digital, crypto, Musk-worshipping, deregulation, libertarian bro-douches who yammer on endlessly about small government, and then they come crying to Uncle Sam, you know, rescue us, I don't want to lose my money or my Ferrari. You know, fuck you. You know, you the, even the dude, what's his name, Becker, the the president of, of signature of a Silicon. Yes. yeah he's the one that was like lobbying you know just to make a very long story very short in 2008 after the collapse congress enacted the dodd frank legislation barney frank was was part of that and uh who actually ended up on the silicon valley bank board yep. right and uh, this was to protect americans from this kind of financial collapse again in the future and then Donald Trump becomes president and Becker and others in the banking industry lobbied heavily and they rolled back some of the protections in, in, in Dodd-Frank. So it's like they, they're libertarian, the hypocrisy is just astounding. They're, they they want to be libertarians and keep the government out of it until it's time for me and you and everybody else who pays taxes to bail their asses out. But the big question here is, is it, is this, is this a bailout? And from what I can gather and what I've read, and I've read a lot on it in the last few days, it doesn't seem like it's a bailout because there's a fund, there's a hundred million dollar fund, FDIC, hundred billion, right, fund, FDIC fund that guarantees this stuff. And yes, I guess at the end of the day, if they, if it ends up being more than a hundred billion, the taxpayers will have to start to foot the bill, but it's incredibly unlikely that, that, that money wouldn't be well, well more than enough. Um, but what was bailed out was the, the, bank depositors, not the bank themselves. Like no one's saving SVB. No one's saving, you know, First Republic or Credit Suisse or Signature, which was also shut. Other bankers are, like First Corporate, which is given a $30 billion cash infusion by Chase and JP, you know, and other major banks to a bankruptcy. Credit Suisse was bailed out in a sense by the Swiss Central Bank, basically just guaranteeing their assets and shoring up their cash so that they, they don't but, you know, it's actually also the people. I mean, you know, SVP, SV, SVB had a, uh, an announcement that they had made last week. And they said that they, were, they had like a $1.8 billion shortfall or something like that. And then everybody rushed to the bank to take the money out. Like, if they didn't do that, this wouldn't have happened. Well, it's not everybody. It's the Peter Thiels who basically called up their friends and they took out. It's not the people taking out $250,000. It's the people taking out $10 billion that was a problem. True. My, my point is that panic begets 
more panic and more problems. I mean, one of the ways to solve this in the future is just um, all the tech bros have to have the caps lock key removed from the keyboard so they can't do the all caps tweets. Yeah. And what's also infuriating is this whole like woke bank shit. The banks are now woke. But, you know, there's there's the ESG policies, which are environmental, social and corporate governance driven investing strategies. And then there's DEI, which is diversity, equity and inclusion. And you have people like Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas who are like, you know, this is the reason. This is the cause. Oh, because they're, they're too distracted on, on diversity and inclusion. There was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal which basically said that there were too many women on the board. Yeah, like what does that that's even mean? That's the reason. Yeah, that, obviously. That, that's obviously the reason. Yeah, if, if, there were, if there were no women on the board and we didn't stop worrying about like hiring more black and brown people, like... What they're basically saying is if you could just let the white guys control everything, you know, without any kind of, you know, interference. Like back would in be 2008. Okay. But it's the white guys who keep fucking everything up. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So anyway, the Department of Justice is opening an investigation. We'll see what happens there. So that brings us to our winners and losers. My winner is Jamie Dimon and the biggest banks who are going to vacuum up enormous amounts of capital from people leaving regional banks. Mm -hmm. My loser is, going back to your rant a moment ago, is Greg Becker, CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, mm -hmm. who just on February 27th happened to sell $3.6 million worth of shares, among other things that he did wrong. My winner, Ukraine. Poland pledged sending MiG-29s to Ukraine, becoming the first NATO country to do so, which was quickly followed by Slovakia. My loser, my favorite loser, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene's Mexican drug cartel bomb was actually a bag of sand. <laughs> Marjorie. My win, I had him down as Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. He's not quite the winner this week, but I'm going to leave him out there because I think he's going to be a winner very soon. My loser... The Oscars, which yet again can't seem to find a woman director to nominate for its Best Director Award. That brings us to our rant. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis went on Tucker Carlson's show Monday night and did his best impression of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's 1930s appeasement of Adolf Hitler. Here's the gist of what Ronnie Meatball said. Quote, While the U.S. has many vital national interests becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Territorial dispute? Seriously? And he wants to be president? Commander-in-chief? Sworn to defend America against its enemies, domestic and foreign? Most of the intelligent, sane world views Putin's invasion of Ukraine as not just a heinous war crime, but as an existential threat to post-World War II international security. No surprise that Meatball chose to spew his ignorant rhetoric to Carlson, himself a major opponent of U.S. involvement in Ukraine. He's called President Zelensky a corrupt, quote, anti-hero, and has mocked him for dressing, quote, like the manager of a strip club. And no surprise either that Trump, the former Putin ass-kisser-in-chief, who wanted to destroy NATO, said he'd let Russia, quote, take over parts of Ukraine in a deal he could negotiate day one. Lastly, also not a surprise, Meatball's dangerously foolish, naive comment has been widely criticized by leading Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, and Lindsey Graham, who said, quote, the Neville Chamberlain approach to aggression never ends well. If Meatball's going to run for president and command the greatest military in the world, he needs to better understand 2023 geopolitics 
and Russia's threat to world order. Well, it's time for our guest today, Gary Gullman. He is an actor and comedian and is one of the most popular touring comics selling out theaters around the country. The New York Times wrote, Gary is finally being recognized as one of the country's strongest comedians. He is currently on his Born on Third Base tour, in which he hilariously chronicles his impoverished childhood on food stamps, free lunch, and welfare checks. He's made four masterful TV specials, including his most recent universally acclaimed stand-up special for HBO, The Great Depression, a tour de force look at mental illness, which is equal parts hilarious and inspiring. He was most recently seen co-starring with Amy Schumer in the hit Hulu comedy series Life and Beth, and is currently writing a memoir for Flatiron Books titled Misfit. Gary, welcome to the back room. It is good to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. Uh, first off, I just want to say I'm a big fan. I, I've watched you from the last comic standing days. Wow. Uh, I was actually doing stand-up back then. Not very well, as you can see. But I watched you and I thought, well, this guy's, this guy's got talent and he's going places. And Oh, thank you. You did. You went places. Now, thank let's you. go back to where you started from, though. Massachusetts, which I was, I was yeah. just in Massachusetts visiting my daughter and my grandkids, a little south of Boston. You're from, mm-hmm. how do you, I, I, I always get, you know, the, the whole Massachusetts town pronunciation thing, like, yeah. like people like me from New York are like Peabody, but that's not how it is, yeah. right? It's, what is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a shibboleth. You know that word? No, it sounds Yiddish. It does. I'm and a it, Jew, and I but that... I don't really do the Yiddish thing. Only I have a couple of like Mishigas yeah. and Shmata right, and stuff right. like that. Yeah, Shmata is a good one. That's um, a real good one. I... There's another good yeah. one, that, but there's a lot of ones you can't say anymore, so I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> right. I think shibboleth is a Yiddish word or Hebrew word that was used. It's like a, a test. If you pronounce a, an expression the right way, it means you're from that area. So it was like a, it was it was kind of a, a, a defensive mechanism. So if you're from Peabody, you pronounce it Peabody. Peabody. And they, they know you're from there. So that to, that's a very long answer to a to a not very significant question. So I apologize. But but it's a specific answer. Yes. And, yes. and you being a, a former teacher, it seems quite appropriate that you you went into yes. the weeds on that one. Yeah, I like the, the weeds is where I get most of my humor. <laughs> uh, but there's also Glo- Glo- Gloucester and Worcester and situ- yeah. situate like. Why can't they yeah. just name towns that people can phonetically say? Like, why does it have to be so complicated in Massachusetts? No, I know. I know. And I think it's to keep this, the strangers away or, or, or at least keep them on, on their back foot, I think. And and then there's the whole mass hole thing. Like, that's like a pretty self-deprecating uh, term, isn't it? Yeah, they're very, they're very proud of being obnoxious and or ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a good virtue. They're the, being a they're the worst. Yeah, the worst sports fans. The the oh, team horrible. is is I mean guilty until proven innocent. Until they win a championship, they are they are losers and failures. It's it's so frustrating because we've had such great fortune in in sports over the years, and and it's it's wasted on these ungrateful people. Yeah, I, one of my favorite sports moments was many, many years ago. I forget what year, but the Patriots went like 16-0 the entire season. Yeah. And then like the weekend before Super Bowl, I was with a buddy, and he's from Massachusetts, and and he goes, can't wait for that Super Bowl. And I was like, well, you never know. And he goes, 16-0, baby, Patriots don't lose. 
And then like <laughs> Monday morning, I was like, you idiot. Like you don't, you just don't yeah. talk that way, right? You don't talk um, that way because um, nothing happened. When you go into the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter what happened the, the other 16 games, right? But it, it so speaks, speaks to yeah. the arrogance. And so you've done some acting, but did you ever want to do like those typical Matt Damon, Affleck, Wahlberg, Boston cop movies? Oh, geez. I I don't know. I, I think I think I have an advantage in in that like Damon and Affleck, I have the I have the accent down. I'm I'm sort of doing an accent when I'm not when I'm on stage doing an accent of someone who's not from Boston because there are so many words that you would miss here if you if you did the Boston accent. So I've I I'm I'm not that comfortable playing anything outside of myself. So I think I could do something like that. That that would be very exciting. And I also think I would because the 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 Boston man is is known for not being vulnerable and and I would like to bring some some vulnerability to that that role that 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 might be my my fresh take on the whole thing you want to crash that myth yeah so you don't you don't sound to me at least you don't sound like you have an accent and i've seen you perform a lot like i i would never say that you have an accent but is that your default though like when you're alone and you're like i'm gonna go park my car like when you're talking to your wife and i don't i don't know i think i've been such a chameleon for so long starting at at boston college where i wanted to be understood and uh, also when you when you hear it compared to some of the other accents for instance the midwestern non-accent or the 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 sort of the the californian accent which always seemed a, a little bit laid back i i preferred that accent and i wanted to be understood on stage so i i pretty much have have defaulted to to the Midwestern pronunciation. How, however, my wife loves the Boston accent, so I put it on occasionally to make her laugh. So yeah, she she's a New Yorker. She's from New Jersey, so basically, yeah, she's lived in New York since she was seventeen or eighteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you what whether you think the New York or the Boston accent is more annoying to, on the ear. To when I was growing up, the New York accent irritated me more. Now I now I have an affinity for it. Now the Boston accent really it it really turns me off. It's 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 sad because it's it's my my roots, but it I, I, I find it grating. My granddaughter Cammy is four years old and they live up in Massachusetts, as I said before. And the other day she was telling me about her favorite potatoes. She's like, I like tater tots and I was like, What? Tots? Like, I said to her mother, did you, did you just hear her say tots? Like, as a New Yorker, that was just like, ugh, got to get this kid no. into some kind of speech therapy thing and reverse that before it gets crazy. <laughs> so your your parents divorced when you were two years old. Your your dad, Phil, your mom, mom Barbara, by the way, I love your mom. I watched your doc, and your mother is oh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, she is just yeah, quintess- quintessential Jewish mom. Quintessential. Yes. And we're going to get to that in a bit when we talk about your... Yeah. Your Great Depressed show, but I love the I love the I love the part where you're 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 showing us the Lonely Tree book, and it seems yeah. like that went completely over your mom's head during childhood. Like she she had no idea that like a, a little kid writing a book called The Lonely Tree is probably not a good thing. Right. It's it's interesting. I I think one that parents were not as in tune 
with the, their kids back then and and for better or for worse. And the other thing is that a, a lot of working class people who are 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 not what what is the expression from Deer Hunter when when Robert De Niro keeps saying this is this <laughs> and and that I feel is is how my my family sees things. There's not a lot of metaphor or interpretation or reading into things. And I, I shouldn't say it's working class. I, I think there are some people who who see things literally and other people who can interpret things in a more figurative, metaphorical way. And my my mother has never been one of those yeah. one of those people. And and it's it's something that I've sort of had to had to learn to be better at that because it's it's I I took I I was always overwhelmed by philosophy and and poetry because I couldn't I couldn't read between the lines and and so more more reading and and more study has has led me to be able to un understand some of the some of the symbolism mm. and some of the some of the feeling in in art but that's taken me I'm I'm 52 years old, so it's taken me most of my life to figure it out. Yeah, well, that's one of the benefits of aging. Is aside from the liver, yeah. liver spots and and <laughs> stomach problems, you, you gain some wisdom along right. the way. Yeah, uh, but I love when yes. you're you're sitting on the couch with your mom and and you're showing the book, and she like there it's so it's such a sweet poignant moment because at the same time as she was clearly clueless back then about it, which a lot of people were and still are to the for the reasons you say she also like kind of looks at the camera she's like yeah i guess you know a tree a lonely tree for, you know it's just there was you know i missed the sun like it was such a poignant moment that she she literally came across as being so <clears throat> empathetic and but in a way that was like regretful that she missed what you were trying to say you know yeah. i guess maybe it's just the, the times they that we we lived in back then you know yeah, uh, certainly. Unless unless a kid were to it, the problem is a kid, it's almost like a a pet. A pet can't tell you what it's feeling. It doesn't have the literally doesn't have the words, and a kid really doesn't have the words to tell you what they're feeling. So it's yeah. it's very, it's a very frustrating age. But if your if your pet turtle wrote a book called The Lonely Tree, <laughs> you might go. I think there's something problematic with my pet turtle, right? Thank you. Uh, but your mom, you. I, I love when your mom just looked at the camera and she goes, I, I mean, he was a happy-go-lucky kid. And yeah. it's like, we're watching this documentary show on HBO and it's like, this is, th he was not a happy-go-lucky kid. Like, he was the exact right. opposite of a happy-go-lucky right. kid. You know, you're you're talking yeah. about like Sunday nights, fearing going to school the next day because of bullying oh, yeah. and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, that's not very happy-go-lucky. But right. so you have uh, you had two brothers, you have two brothers, but you, you grew up with a, quote, unusual sect of Judaism. You want to talk about that? Oh, yes. We were we were we were poor people. We because of the divorce and because my father worked for for some very stingy uh, uncles, we were we were broken. And, and so we, we didn't feel poor, thank goodness, because we had we had public assistance. And there wasn't, there didn't seem to be, and perhaps there was, I just wasn't aware of it. There didn't seem to be a, a stigma or a, a shame associated with this. And the other thing was that the, the neighborhood we 
lived in was was middle class. The, the house was probably purchased with with the GI Bill loan. And so we, we we grew up in a in a decent neighborhood, and we also weren't there weren't super rich people living living around us. So the, the, the it was it was middle class, and and so there wasn't there there wasn't the in your face consumption that that is so common now. Mm. And with, is it true that you your you guys were on food stamps? For- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Food stamps, and and I got free lunch through high school, and and there were uh we received assistance for for heating oil and things like that, and and Massachusetts, and I think it still is, was was very generous to the the poor and the needy. So we we were very we were very fortunate. My brothers both went to the University of Massachusetts, and I mean the the tuition cost is is laughable. I, I, it was either 2,500 a semester or 2,500 a year mm-hmm. to go if you were, if you were in state. And then, so back then it was, it was possible to go to this really good university with a summer job and, and a few loans that you were able to pay off by the time you were 30. It was, I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a shame that that's not, yeah. that's not the case everywhere. So Jews on food stamps. You know, there's like yeah. probably three families in the last fifty years that <laughs> Jews on food stamps. That's oh, a... I, don't, I don't know because there were a lot of, especially in the '80s, there were a lot of Russian Jews who emigrated from hmm. from okay. the USSR. So it, I don't think it's as uncommon as you think. And and also we are we were also very lucky in that the Jewish community of 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 it was called the the Jewish Federation of the North Shore. They mm-hmm. they paid for my they paid for my Hebrew school education, and one summer they sent me for a month to a to a Jewish day camp. So the the generosity of of the state as as well as the Jewish community was was just it was integral to to who who I became and and the, the opportunities I was given. I was very very fortunate. Yeah, and in fact, I'm familiar with that stuff. I mean, my father was a New York City cab driver, so we were we were very blue collar. No one in my family yeah. ever went to college. We, me and my two brothers, were crammed in one bedroom. Jewish Federation sleepaway camp I went to up in Sussex, New Jersey. Oh, wow. I think it was like I want to say it was like forty bucks for like three weeks. It was nothing. You oh, know. that's extraordinary. Although my my parents probably would have paid anything they could to, to get rid of me for the summer. But yeah, no, I get that. And I, I when I said that there's three families, I I feel like mine was almost one of them. You know what I mean? Like as we right, have yeah. we, and we grew up, I grew up in Queens and, uh, you know, the neighborhood was mixed and it was classic Jew, Italian, Irish kind of thing. And But we were right near the Nassau County border. So I don't know if you know, like the five towns very well, like Cedarhurst. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. So like I could look over the fence and see all the well. Oh, wow. But then wow. I'd go back right. to sharing a room with my two annoying brothers. But yeah. And so, and then, uh, so you, you, you're a big dude. So you, you just like, people looked at you and they're like, all right, give this guy a basketball or give him a football or give him something. Right. And you sort of gravitated to football and, and basketball. And you, you said your high school football coach wanted you to play, but you said your mother wouldn't let you. Tell the story about what, what happened at the end of that story. Oh, I mean, I, I gravitated to, 
towards basketball, but I was I was dragged kicking and screaming onto a football field by these. There were these two. They were assistant coaches on the basketball team, and they were twins, and they they looked like comic book heroes. They they were muscled, had these these really strong jaws and long hair. I mean, almost, almost like Thor. And they saw me, they saw me dunk a basketball during gym class. And this was the beginning of, of junior year. And they harassed me until all through the year. They said, when are you going to come out on the football field? When are you going to play football? We'll get you a scholarship. We'll get you newspaper headlines. Girls will love you. And, and I said, uh, my, my mother won't let me. And then they were like, you're, you're 18 years old. You can do whatever you want <laughs> once you turn 18. And, and so I, I didn't apply anywhere to college and I didn't really, I didn't have any prospects in basketball other than some division three interest, which doesn't, which doesn't pay for school. And when they said scholarship, I thought, well, that will solve a lot of problems. And then the first day of summer vacation my, before my senior year, one of them called me up at my house. You could just find everybody's phone number in the, in the phone book back then. There was, it was not a very difficult task. So they called me up. He said, meet us at the gym. We're going to train you. If you don't want to play football, you don't have to play football. But I, I know my mindset once somebody does something nice for me like that, I'll I'll come through for them. So I wound up playing football and I got probably six or seven scholarship offers and I wound up I wound up going to Boston College because it was it was the best school that I I had a, a free ride to. So it was a, it was a it was a good education. And the football, the problem was, is that the football program was, was too strong and too intense. And I was, I was overwhelmed. I, 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 I didn't have the makeup to really withstand the, the setbacks and the learning curve. So it, it was, it, it was say it, it was, I don't want to say it was a failure because it, 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 it's, it sounds like I, I, didn't get anything out of it. I got a, I got an education out of it, but the football aspect of it was not, mm -hmm. I did not equip myself with much distinction. Well, the punchline I loved is you said when they tried to get you to play and you were like, my mother won't let me, they said, you're 6'6", 250 pounds. I think you can overpower her. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. genius. Well, it just shows oh, you like when you're yeah. a kid, it doesn't matter how big you are. If mommy yeah. says you're not going to do it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you're not oh. going to do it, you know? I mean, my my my. I don't know if you have ever had this with your mom, but I was I was six foot six, two hundred fifty five. I was never I was never six foot six, by the way. So I never had that. Right, with but my with mom. a right, but with a look, my mother could make me into a six year old boy cowering because uh, I I my mother still was, does that. Yes. Oh my gosh. The that, magic that power of hers. The veed eyebrow and the and the grimace and I and I'm uh and I heal. Yeah, she, my mother can very in, within thirty seconds turn my brain to gefilte fish. So it's uh, <laughs> that's our relationship. Uh, so uh, before we get to comedy, I want to just so you you were a high school substitute teacher and then you worked at Cooper's and Libran, which is like at the time a big six accounting firm. Yeah. Like So you just decided like, hey, this steady paycheck thing is not for me. I need comedy. Like what? How did you get from that? What in your mind? What when did the shift come where you were like, 
I don't want this kind of shit. I, I, I want to do something different. I want comedy in my life. Oh, I, I mean, I, I wanted to be a comedian since I was a, since I was a kid, since I knew it was a, a profession, but there's so, there were so many forces within my family. And then a, a woman I dated in college, just really discouraging this idea saying it was impossible. The thing that they, they make you think with comedy is that there are, there are only six or seven people who make a living at it and they're super famous. They're Chris Rock and, and, and Jerry Seinfeld. But the, the truth is there are a lot of people who you don't even maybe know their name who are doing really well, who own homes and have, and have, families and they didn't tell me about that so i went into it thinking you could either be super rich or a complete failure <laughs> and and so it, it it makes you desperate and it, and it makes you anxious and 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 also i had no no support early on from from family it was it was a handful of friends and the other comedians who would give you an encouragement so i i started at Coopers and Librand, which is now Price Waterhouse Coopers, and and I started there in September of 1993 after graduating, and then my first comedy show was October 11th, 1993, and immediately I was like, well, I, I need to do this. I have to do everything I can to be able to do this more frequently, and but for six years, it was first at Coopers and then at Starbucks and at my old high school, just having these side jobs to keep my, to keep my dreams afloat. It was, it, it was the best of times in, and the worst of times in that I was always broke and anxious about, about my future. But I was, I was so in love with comedy and the, and the people I was working with and the, and the, 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 different milestones I would reach in terms of, of achievement. And it, it was very exciting. And, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for those days. And your early years when you were a kid, you know, you said you always wanted to be a comic. Was there an outlet for it that you found? Like, I mean, knowing of you and watching your Great Depression special and just knowing your history, like, it doesn't sound like you would have been like the class clown kind of guy because that requires like here I am, you know, like you're more withdrawn yeah. and inward and insecure yeah. and like like most of us. Yeah. And you know, did were you funny at places or was it just all inside waiting to burst out until you finally got on a stage? No, I was I was funny. I w I wasn't the class clown because of exactly what you said. I didn't I didn't want to get in trouble, but I. I would always make quips and I was always even even when uh even when I played football at Boston College I remember the the strength and conditioning coach whose job it is to just make you do the the hardest things involved in in playing college football which is which is training and and preparing he he I I found it very interesting he would comment on my on my wit which hmm. nobody really in in the football world would do and and i remember those those twins they would say you're you're very funny but your style does not does not play well in this locker room full of full of brutes and and cretins they they, they, don't, they don't get you so it was 
I would I would occasionally have people who recognized where I was coming from, and I had a couple of I had a couple of teammates on the Boston College football team who thought I was really funny, but they they saw me on the weekends away from the coaches and and things like that. So I I knew I knew that I had a an unusual gift in 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 that I could think quickly and I could make connections very quickly. I, I I'm I'm sure there's a there's a type of intelligence that I lack, but also a, a type of intelligence that that I have a forte with. So and whatever it is in in making connections between two things that are unrelated, I I, I think I'm I'm gifted in that area. Mm-hmm. So you started doing the the open mics in the various clubs in '93. Dick's Beantown Comedy Vault. <laughs> yeah, what, what a great name for a comedy club. I like yeah, that he, the, he threw his name in there. <clears throat> yeah, it was it was it was a really cool place. They had an open mic every Sunday night, and if you didn't mind staying from 8 p.m. till about 12:30 in the morning to go on, you you could do five minutes. But the the comedians were were uh held in what was a bank vault at one time so there was this this giant this giant i mean literally the the door to a a vault it was really impressive it was really a piece of art and we would sit in there where they they used to keep the 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 diamonds and and safe deposit box but uh there was a small stage and it was it was really one of my favorite, one of my favorite rooms. I I also used to perform. I had a friend from Boston College named named Randy, and he played guitar at a at a bar near the Comedy Vault. So after the Comedy Vault, I would go to his show, and when he took a break, he would let me go up and and tell jokes to people who were who were talking over me. I it was. It was ridiculous, but I was convinced that just speaking into a microphone was was pushing me forward in in where I wanted to be. I love the juxtaposition of the vault, like that's where they kept all the really valuable stuff, like cash, yeah. jewels, yeah. and no name comics. <laughs> yes, terrible, equal terrible value. Comedian. Yes, yes. Uh, and then so you went out to L.A. and that's kind of around the same time that you got last comic standing and that was a big deal because that was a big tv show at the time and then uh, tell us tell me about like how how did the career start to snowball from there well the first thing that was really helpful was i did this this uh annual festival in in montreal canada called the just for laughs international comedy festival and in the in the 90s and up until i think 2000 they were really it's it's sort of like the the situation where they they try to find the next michael jordan to sell sneakers they were trying to find because tim allen and paul riser and jerry seinfeld had had made so much money for for commercial television, they were trying to find the next Jerry Seinfeld. So they would give these very lucrative development deals to young stand-up comedians. And that that lasted for about 10 years. The thing that you don't hear about is that most of the comedians 
never made a, a show. Some made pilots that didn't get picked up. So it was, it was, it was almost like a, um, a, a subsidy for young stand-ups in that you didn't have to be on the road to make money, but the 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 side the side effect was that you you couldn't get on the road to make money because you weren't well known, mm. and only the people who had situation comedies were really or movies were getting were getting work or had become stars on television like Jerry Seinfeld before they had TV shows. They were well known through Johnny Carson and, and David Letterman. So it, it was a very difficult time because I was living in Los Angeles and there were there weren't that many comedy clubs and the comedy clubs they did have were, were stacked with with people who were household names. And so the, the positive thing was that I I would go to an acting class four nights a week which gave me friends and also trained me in 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 acting, but it, it was comedy is is my my life and my love at that time, and I wasn't able to do it very frequently. It was very it was very frustrating and depressing. And then, thank goodness, Last Comic Standing came along. So after four years of of not getting on stage getting on stage more on the tonight show than I did at the local comedy clubs, like the comedy store, the laugh factory. Mm -hmm. And then last comic standing put me in to a point where I could get work in the, in the clubs. And I, for the first time was after 10 years was make a, making a living just from stand up, not from these sort of uh, subsidies from the, from the networks trying to find, trying to find a, 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 a new Paul riser. Right. Well, you know, the, the 90s, I did a bunch of stand-up in the 90s. The 90s was a, a an interesting time in comedy because prior to that, like when I was, grow, you know, a young, a young guy, like in New York, it was the improv, Catch a Rising Star, and the comedy, uh, comic strip. That was it. Yeah. Then like yeah. in the 90s, like it became this explosion where like towards, the, I guess, the end of the 90s, but like at some point, like like every hotel had a comedy room and there was open yes. mics everywhere. And uh, it, it was an interesting time. I mean, I was in, I had a, a, a marketing company, so I it was I decided like after my divorce that I I, I needed more rejection, so I did I, <laughs> comedy. That just it was calling yeah. me. And uh, but I'll never forget. I was I actually got fairly good at it. I used to perform a lot at Stand Up New York on the Upper West Side, and oh, yeah. uh, I did a, a show. This guy brought me into his show every Saturday night after a while, which was great. He produced it and he did it and was like regular like you know, of David Tell type comics, like good comics. Wow. And and yeah. then like he had a couple of newbies in the show. So I was like one of his newbies. And so Sunday morning, I get a call from Suzanne Hoffman, who together with her husband, Carrie, owned the club. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They said, oh, we, we, we heard you were in the club last night and you killed. We want you to come in and audition for a regular spot. And I thought, this is it. Like, I'm not even trying. And I got my break. This is great. So I went in and like just three people there. And they're like, all right, go ahead. Do five minutes. And I was like, oh, fuck, oh. three people. Did my thing, got through it somehow. And uh, afterwards, Carrie Hoffman call, says, all right, let's go out to the bar and talk. And he looks at me and he goes, you're really funny. And I was like, thanks. He goes, but you have no persona. Uh. I said, what? I hadn't even heard that word before. And he right. said, and to your point before, he said, look, I, I, my wife and I, we, we also like manage talent. We produce sitcoms. Like we're looking for people that we can build a show around. And I, 
I was still kind of like a deer in the headlights, like trying to understand what he's talking about. And he goes, Look, you know, Tim Allen, he's the handyman. Roseanne Barr, she's the angry housewife. Who are you? And I was like, uh-huh. I don't know. And I, the only thing I could say in response, I said, can I just be the funny guy who killed in your club last night? And he said, I got, right. a, mil- I got a million of those. And he goes, I, I want to make money. So I want to ask you, what, how do you define your persona? And like, have you ever had a persona issue? Because people who work in comedy know that word more than anybody else in the world. Like you need, you can't just be funny. You have to have a strong persona. Did you always feel like you had a persona? Did you have to work at your persona? And what is, in your mind, what is your persona? I mean, it, it's, uh, I got those, those development deals partly because I talked about my family and living at home with my mom when I was 25 years old. And so the show was, all the shows they wanted to do were based around me living at home. But I will say that you start off in comedy and you just want to be funny. And then 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, you find your persona, your voice, I've often heard it called, or your point of view. And it's interesting because it took me at least until probably 2003 or so to find, to return to who I was without comedy in terms of uh, I I felt like I was being myself on stage and being what I thought was funny and what would have made me laugh when I first started. But it takes so long to learn the technique and the delivery and get confident on stage and comfortable and not anxious and worried and and speak too fast. So it's it's this journey into becoming yourself, although People probably said it. It never made any sense to me until until it occurred. It's it's almost like one of those things where you don't know you're doing it until you do it. So I can say I can say now, well, my persona is is I'm exactly like I am off stage, but a little more confident. I I would say I'm I'm basically myself, but after a really strong cup of coffee. Well, I think that's that's it. It's like if you have a strong persona, it, it's just, you know, it's like the De Niro thing that that that's that like this is this like it, it's there. Yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. you don't have yeah. to work at it, you know, and uh, and that was a, a lesson for me that like I was like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Like there, there are people who are just, you know, like my favorite comics in, in history, whether it's Pryor or Freddie Prinze or Carlin or uh, it's like. I could listen to them just read the phone book and it would be hilarious because of who they are. Whereas there's a lot right. of comics, you know, guys like me who dabbled at it, didn't really get anywhere and, and could be funny for five or 10 minutes. But like when you walk off the stage, it's like you don't, you, you don't, you're not remembered because you're, you're not really being you per se. You're, you're, you're being a funny guy that you've trained yourself to be and you could do it, you know? Right. But it's just, an, it's an interesting thing because it is, you know, it is, it's like anything. If you are genuine and authentic in who you are, that comes through and yeah. you, you you can succeed. I want to ask you about uh, some of your bits. Like, What's a favorite bit of yours? Like, I have favorites of yours, but I want to see what 
you come like oh. what do you think is like just so fucking funny that you created <laughs> like like you, i mean the, the 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 one about when i when i um am a a role playing with my girlfriend and and we play professor and student who needs to pass my class to graduate and she she just wants to have sex but i I want her to take the class seriously, and so we we uh, wind up in an argument. That's that's one of my favorites, mainly because it was a joke that that hardly ever worked until I sort of came into my own in terms of of confidence. And it was the first joke where the audience disagreed with me on whether it was funny or not. And I was so insistent on it that eventually I got it to work and it and it was just a matter of finding good audience, a good audience that liked it because it's not it's not a joke back then I could have done in front of anyone. Now I have the confidence I know I could do it in front of everyone, but there there are certain jokes where you just need the right crowd. Mm -hmm. And I I, I insisted on it and, and that so that was a very that was a very important an important uh, step in in de developing as a as a performer. That would also make for a great new Pornhub channel, like <laughs> Professor Student Sex Rejection, right? Like, yeah. Yes. Probably yes. probably end up being the least watched channel on Pornhub. <laughs> I, uh, I love your basketball stuff, like the whole slap on the wrist. Oh. You know that. I mean, oh, it, it's just you. it's so funny. Your synagogue team. Oh, for high. I mean, oh, come on. That's oh, genius. My word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing with my basketball routines is, is that I loved basketball since I was 10 years old and I wasn't able to write anything funny about it for another 30 years or so. And I don't, I don't know why I just, uh, I guess when you're immersed in something, you're, it's harder to tell the funny things. I think sometimes as an outsider, you're, you're, it's easier to to discover these things, or or it just might be a matter of of laziness. The 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 absurdity of installing breakaway rims in a Jewish community center gym. Oh yeah. In the history <laughs> in the history of the NBA, only four people have smashed a backboard, and not one was a ten year old Jew. That's a great right. line. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank let's you. talk about the mental illness which you've been incredibly courageous about bringing to the public uh, stage, literally and figuratively. Oh, well, um, thank you. I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to disagree, but I, I really feel that the courage is in getting up every day and, and muddling through with, with mental illness. Once I was on the other side, first of all, it was, it was very easy to tell people that there's hope and there's, recovery but also i felt a, a certain a certain obligation and and that's probably a, a a combination of my gratitude as well as the the jewish ethos which is to to try and try and i mean the the hebrew term is tikkun olam which means heal the world which is incredibly grandiose i don't feel i healed the world but it's 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 something we just not knowing how I grew up utilizing the generosity of the of the Jewish community, I I I felt a, that definitely an, 
either a either a subconscious or a conscious obligation to to share my my knowledge and and also help other people who are are struggling. Yeah, but you know, Gary, let's be real. We live in an age today where everybody's on social media and they're posting everything about their amazing lives and we all have friends where we look at this and we go she's miserable she's not happy i know this woman she doesn't right. have this yeah. life she's miserable yeah yeah you, you took and this is not to minimize the actual mental illness and the and the symptoms and and the challenges in life that's a given but you decided to go the other route not to post and be happy gary that you ch you chose to share those challenges with the world but even more so on a comedy stage like it's fucking hard enough to be funny <laughs> just about regular stuff you know you decided like i'm gonna get on a, a stage i mean you know when you at the beginning of the great depression which by the way people you gotta watch this thing on hbo is the Funniest, most poignant, most emotionally interesting, fascinating. I mean, it is just an important show for the reasons why I'm talking about now. But you you, you start off by, uh, oh no, you were at a Boston comedy club and you, you start off by saying, I have a mental illness. I have a severe mental illness. It's excruciating. It's excruciating. This is like a cosmic bottom. This is like a bottom. I mean, when like, <laughs> Harry and his wife decide to get a babysitter and go out Saturday night <laughs> to a comedy club. Like that's not the shit they're expecting to hear, right? Like the, yeah. the the courage that I'm talking about is that to get on a stage and drop that kind of bomb, but have the confidence that you're going to turn it and you're going to have those people eating out of your hands. I mean, in the Great Depression, you talk about the saddest shit ever. Yeah. And yet you did it in such a brilliantly funny, humorous way, self-deprecating and, I mean, your likability and, and you know, my my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, who was an actor and a filmmaker, she made the movie Waitress and she was murdered no, in I, 2006. Yeah, um, no, I know. She always used to say, like, when she would write characters, make, even the bad guys, make them, you want to root for these people. If you don't root for the characters, you're dead. Right. You have this larger than life challenge that you've been struggling with your whole life and you brought it to a comedy stage, but you do it in such a way that it is impossible for people, not just to not like you, but to not root for you. And you found huh. that path and th the courage is in talking honestly about the darkest shit but that we can we can laugh about it too. We live in a very fucked up society where like, you know, dark is dark. Let's keep right. dark over here. We we're not supposed to talk about it. We we can't we certainly can't laugh about it, right? But when we get on right. Facebook, let's, you know, post happy shit and make it look like our lives are awesome. And so that was what I took away from the Great Depression. I remember watching it when it first came out in 19 and I watched it again this week. And uh, because n not many people are doing that. And, and, and we're also at the same time in our culture today learning about how many people suffer from mental illness and how many people have depression and anxiety in our kids today and the, going through the pandemic and that, how that exacerbated it all. And so, it, it, you know, you're, with all due respect, you're being a little modest, but there is a real bravery in doing what you did 
and making it okay. That's the thing. You've made it okay. Oh, well, I, I mean, that's such a beautiful testimony. And I'll, I'll say thank you. And, but I think comedians, there have been a lot of comedians who have, I shouldn't say a lot, Maria Bamford and Chris Gethard have made great specials talking about mental illness before me. So I wasn't, at the time I was like, well, they talked about it. Why do I need to talk about it? And, but I did have a, a, a little bit of a, of a difference in my story that it, it, it made it seem like I wasn't just pasting, copy and pasting. But the thing is, is that I was standing on the shoulders of giants and, and a lot of people have asked me over the years and I, and I understand that they, they say, well, are, are comedians more likely to be mentally ill? And I think the answer is maybe a little bit, but what, what is, what we're really seeing is that comedians are nine times as likely to talk about it on stage in front of strangers. And I, I remember when I first started, and this seems like such a, a small thing now, but in 1993, it was very significant that I saw a woman, her name was Barbara Swanson. She was, she's passed away, but she was a, a, a beloved comedian around Boston and everybody enjoyed her. And she was nice and very generous. And she talked about on stage being on Prozac. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, why is she telling everybody that? They're, they're going to make fun of her and they're, they're gonna be uncomfortable around her. But really what happened was people laughed and as a person who was on Prozac at the time, I thought, oh my God, she's she's really nailing this this observation and how what a great gift. So I I will say that that I'm one I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and and two I had a lot of time where I was depressed and didn't have the skill as a comedian to really talk about it in a in a funny way. So I. I think that the sort of the the what is that that's Spock used to say the 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 uh not the guiding mission the whatever it was along the lines of a guiding a guiding mission is that first you got to be funny and especially if you're an unknown comedian luckily by the time I was doing the great depression on the road people were there to see me so they they were like you said comfortable with my with my persona so that that was very helpful one that i had the skill to translate it from fact into comedy which is fact but usually with a twist and the other thing is just the distance you have from it when you've recovered or or are recovering or are feeling much better where it's it's almost redemptive to say yes i went through that but i'm getting laughs off of it now and that feels really good and and that makes me happy and the the good thing that i'm very grateful for in my career was that laughter was more important to me than than earning a living i because i was broke for so long but I kept getting laughs, and that's what keeps you coming, coming back. That that I I 
more than anything else, I, I loved getting the the laughter and the connection that, that you get. I mean, you've you've had it. It's, it's intoxicating. And and while I probably would have been frustrated and discouraged if I was still doing it for for the art as an amateur, I would I would still be doing it because it it is it is very fun. And I I, I don't I don't discourage anyone from doing any art form just to express themselves. I, I think it's such a, a healthy outlet and it it builds friendships and connections and also is is really soothing to the to the brain and to the to the soul. Yeah, and you talk about the, the people who come to see your shows and the connection, the word you used. I mean the reality is probably half the people in the audience are medicated, right? Dealing with anxiety, yeah. maybe even more. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like, oh, let's go, hey Marge, let's go watch this, you know, kooky comic talk about his mental illness. It's like we feel the same way. Every, you know, some degree, some people have it at larger degrees than others, but you know, it, you, it, something in your show that I thought was so funny, like you said, you can, you can tell the people who have mental illness, like, like oh, yeah, because yeah. if they, if they take the roll of toilet paper and they just leave it on top of the <laughs> empty roll, like. I've been doing that for like the last month and I noticed it right after the show. I was like, wait a second. Gary probably yeah. thinks I'm, I'm losing my mind here. Like what? And so, but we all have something. And I think, you know, it's great when people can share that with a comic and laugh about it, you know, because the truth is what people struggle with is often not funny. It's not pleasant. It's dark. And you talk about right. your own, your own experience, by the way, in your in Great Depression, and 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 if you watch the, I made a documentary for HBO. I directed and produced it about my late wife. It's called Adrian. But if you watch it just for this one thing, it's going to freak you out. This there's a scene in your film, uh, in your show, where it, it it's a cutaway to the front of your house where you grew up. I have the same kind of scene in my film, and I swear to God, the houses are fucking identical. Where really? where Adrian grew up in Jericho, Long Island. It's literally like the same house. But it's also the same, just got to, it's like maybe 15 minutes into the film. It's on HBO. It literally looks like a, you and Adrian grew up in the same house. It's it's kind of crazy. Oh, but I bet it was the same developer, this guy, Alfred Campanelli. It might, it might be, because it's kind of startling how similar where the garage is, the door is, that big window in the, like it's the walkway, the grit, yeah. the front yard. It's, it's, it's crazy. Built hundreds of thousands of, of suburban homes. So it's, it's, wow, wow. that's eerie. Yeah. What, what, just check it out for that. But you talked about when you were in a hospital, which was very funny. This guy came up to you and he said, hey, are you Gary Goldman or am I crazy? That <laughs> is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, was so, it was so funny. And let me tell you something. It, it was my first day of, of hospitalization. So I was, I was frightened by everything I had heard about, about hospitals. And also I was, I was kind of hopeless, but... I I laughed when he said that, but also I remember thinking, if I ever get back to doing stand-up, I have to tell this story. And and I mean, again, you know this, something will happen and you'll say, oh, this is so bizarre, but it's gonna make a great, a great joke on stage. Mm -hmm. And and so that was that was really imp important because it was it, it was an icebreaker a lot of times when I would bring up 
mental illness in my act, I would I would say raise your hand if you've ever been re recognized in the psych ward. And of course, nobody would raise their hand, but they would laugh because it's such an absurd, an absurd idea. But that, yeah, that happened. And and the other thing is that my ego uh, was so big that I actually was like, all right, the words the words getting out there. That I'm 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 getting recognized. So that this is this is good. Your bit about side effects of the meds. Can you re re do I mean, a little that, bit of that? These are these are the these are the jokes that that I, I mean I got in comedy to be able to tell these these jokes that are seem so personal but when you, the more specific you get you'll find or we find the more universal it is it's it's uncanny I guess because it's it's it it. it it affirms the fact that we are living in the same world. So I remember watching All in the Family when I was a kid and Archie Bunker would have a can and it said beer on it. And I was like, this is this is so phony. Why do they do this? And so anyhow, I've been on medication since 1990 and things stop working, things work for a while things don't work. So I've tried and been on for at various times, like no less than 15 medications. So at one point I just, I memorized a list of them and I, it was so specific that because I was mentioning so many, there was somebody in the audience who had been on at least one or, or two of them. <laughs> but that was, that was a really helpful joke just to get across the, 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 the thing is, is that I feel great but it's after a long term dedication to feeling better. I, I, I really think that the, the greatest indicator of whether you'll get well is, is if you are a, a good patient and keep, keep trying. Yeah. Well, you, you, you joke about how people say to you, like, are you, are you worried about the side effects? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Your bit on I'm that is hilarious. <laughs> But the thing is, is that the worst side effect of d depression is is death. I'm 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 more worried about the side effects of depression than I am the side effects of of Wellbutrin and Zoloft. <laughs> you talk about uh, they say, aren't you worried about impotence in your your oh, yeah. punchline? <laughs> I would, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I, I was... I'm having so much sex in the fetal position. <laughs> and then also, uh, diarrhea is so much more productive than death. <laughs> yes. Oh man, it, yeah. it's just. Uh, but you see, those are the things you just said it a second ago. It's like if you mention enough medications, somebody's on at least one of them, and they identify, and yeah. they they need to laugh about it, you know. And that's what you're providing. <laughs> you 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 finish the the show. You say my depression is in remish, which is a great moment for us at home watching because that's great to know that you're on yeah. in, on the road to a recovery and you're you know, doing well. And then you say life, you know, it's every single day, right? It is every mm -hmm. single day. As someone who's been through trauma and tragedy, like it's always been my motto, just one minute at a time, one day at a time. And then you do tell people that, you know, who are suffering, you know, just get out and interact, right? Just get out in the world and, and try to, you know, there's, there's hope. You're not alone. And those messages are, yeah. are really important to people. 
Yeah, I, f- I found them really helpful. And and the, the thing I always say is is that it it's it's not one thing that will will make you better or or able to to function. It's I I've hit it from every angle, be it medicine and exercise and diet and getting enough sleep and making sure that I that I spend time with friends or at least like during the pandemic, I would make sure I was on the phone with a friend for at least a half hour each day because those those things my my doctor has said this and I've heard this confirmed elsewhere is overcoming that inertia of sitting alone is is so helpful. It is not going to cure you, but it can make an incremental improvement in in how you're feeling. And sometimes that's enough to do the next thing, which is maybe go for a long walk with a with a friend, and and that is that is so helpful. You just, you, it's 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 so sad that it's kind of a, a a razor's edge of of a desire to to live some days. Mm-hmm. That there are that there are days where you you want to give up. And then somebody will make a phone call, invite you out, and somehow you muster the 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 energy and and courage. I really think it's courage to go out there and take a chance. And at the end of the day, literally at the end of the day, when I'm going to sleep, I think, all right, I'm gonna feel lousy tomorrow morning. But for 45 minutes when I was walking with my friend, I felt alive and I and I recognized the the value in 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 existing and 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 that's enough some days and it seems like you've got a great support system i mean your wife shade yes. not that yes. Sade. you're right Sade. right not, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, uh, my, she seems like my a saint Sade. oh my word i i i can't imagine doing it doing it by myself but then i remember i did it by myself for so long i went to doctors and i and i and I struggled with this alone, thinking you had to do everything alone. Nobody would care enough to help out. And she just, she went to every doctor's appointment. She she researched for me. She looked into other things. She got me an appointment with, with somebody who gave ketamine infusions. I mean, I, I was so overwhelmed and, and, and uh, addled at the time that I, that I probably didn't make it clear how how grateful I was for her. But at one point she learned how to grow mushrooms because she had learned about a study that's actually very far along in, in trials about psilocybin mushrooms and treatment of, of, of depression Mm. and, and trauma. And, and there's actually a great book by Michael Pollan who wrote, uh, omnivores dilemma. It's called, uh, changing your mind, which I, I recommend, but I, I've never done the mushrooms, but she grew these mushrooms in our apartment and we never used them, but she, she committed a felony to try and, and, and save me. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really, I, I can't say enough for the, the family team effort aspect of, of dealing with, with mental illness. Well, when you got a, a woman who's willing to break the law for you, I, I'd say she's a keeper. Yeah. She's a keeper. <laughs> So you got your oh, mother, you you yeah. got your your wife, you got your mother, and you got the comedy stage, and those are all very important things to, you know, yeah. in this process. Gary, you've been really generous with your time. I've got a million more questions. I could probably sit here for the next six hours, 
Fortunately, you got a book coming out in September yes. called yes, uh, September Misfit. 19th. Yes. So we already talked yes. about offline, how you're going to come back and we'll talk about the book and I get to ask you some more questions, but really appreciate you coming on. This was truly fascinating. I love comics and I'm a comedy snob and I just <laughs> think you're one of the funniest oh, dudes out there. Really enjoyed our, our talk. Hopefully we'll be able to, to go for a walk someday in person. Absolutely. But we'll end on that note. Thanks again. All right. This is great. That's episode 52. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jan Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Gary Goldman. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.